what a beautiful time of worship that was. I loved that uh, those songs. Um, love the reworking of an old hymn, but I love that line: "Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. How much we owe to grace." Amen. 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 Well, we continue today in our series on the Minor Prophets, and today we begin the book of Micah, um, uh, one, of the, one of the great Minor Prophets. I know I've said that about every Minor Prophet that we've talked about so far, um, but it's amazing how and we were talking about this yesterday as a family. Um, it's, it so happens that Elizabeth and Hannah, who live in Wichita, are going to uh, attend a church there, First Evangelical Free Church, and they're going through a series on the Minor Prophets. And um, we're just talking about how relevant the message of the Minor Prophets is to our day, as much as it was to the days in which uh, the prophets lived. Um, There's so much uh, to learn. And there's so much that, I mean, I've read the Minor Prophets. I can't tell you how many times I have made it a practice to read through the Bible every year for many, many years of my Christian life. And, but yet when you prepare a Bible study or when you prepare a message, you delve into it more deeply, and you see connections and see things that you have never seen before. And so this has been a richly rewarding study for me, and I hope that it has been uh, so for you as well. So we begin today with the book of Micah. Uh, We'll read uh, verse 1, make a few comments to kind of set the stage, and then we'll proceed. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, this verse, in this verse, we learn several things about Micah, his ministry, and the times in which he lived. We're told, first of all, that he was from Moresheth, which was a village about 22 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. So this places him in the tribe and kingdom of Judah. We've talked about some other minor prophets, uh, Jonah, who was from the northern kingdom of Israel. We've talked about Hosea, also from the northern kingdom of Israel. Same, same with, uh, well, Amos was from the southern kingdom, but he went and preached to the northern kingdom. Uh, but here's Micah now, who is from the southern kingdom, from the tribe of Judah, living not too far from the city of Jerusalem. We're also told that he prophesied during the reigns of three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this places his ministry, let's say, around 740 to 710 B.C. Uh, Thus, his ministry, the beginning of his ministry at least, coincided with the last years of Hosea's ministry. We also learned that the word of the Lord that came to Micah concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem, the capital cities of Israel and Judah respectively. Though, as we get into the book, we'll see that Micah speaks primarily uh, to Jerusalem and to Judah. Micah's name is interesting. It means who is like Yahweh or who is like the Lord. And this is interesting, among other reasons, because the very last oracle of the book uh, begins with the question, who is a God like you? Micah is uh, referred to and quoted in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 26, verse 18. That was about 100 years after the time that Micah lived. So his prophecy in that day was already well known. It was being read, it was being studied, it was being applied in his day, or shortly thereafter. Uh, His prophecy of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. He is quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10. And there are significant parallels in Micah's prophecy with uh, a more famous prophetic contemporary, uh, Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. Isaiah is a major prophet because his book is so long. Micah is a minor prophet because it's shorter. 
But as we see, just because it's shorter, it doesn't mean that he was any the less influential um, because he was being quoted in his own day and shortly thereafter and even in the times of the New Testament. Um, One commentator writes, In common with all other prophets, there is in Micah's teaching a twofold strand, denunciation and threat on the one hand, comfort and promise on the other. This double message determines a division of the chapters of the book, which has long been current. In other words, another, a number of commentators have seen or broken down the book of Micah along these lines. Chapters 1 through 3, uh, which except for two verses, consist exclusively of denunciation of sin and proclamation of approaching judgment. Chapters 4 and 5, containing almost exclusively words of hope and cheer. And then the last two chapters, chapters 6 and 7, in which the two elements are combined. Now, Micah lived during a time of great prosperity in both kingdoms, both in Israel as well as in Judah, as we've talked about before. And this is one of the ironic, seemingly ironic things about the situation. When things were going well, when things seemed secure, this was the time that God was pleased to bring judgment against Israel. The same commentator we quoted a moment ago said it was a civilization that displayed all the evils of a society making haste to be rich. Greed and covetousness, reckless and unscrupulous competition, and a pitiless disregard for the claims of sympathy, charity, and brotherly consideration. We find the denunciation of these evils to be the chief concern of Micah's prophecies, along with exposing the people's hypocrisy in claiming to be God's people, because of what we might call their pro forma religion, that is, according to the forms, going through the motions, doing what the law stipulated them to do in terms of the outward expressions of the worship of God, uh, just, just going through the forms of it, while they completely disregarded what Jesus would later call the weightier matters of the law. Remember that in Matthew 23 and verse 23. He says, you scribes and Pharisees are hypocrites because you're so scrupulous at tithing dill and mint and cumin, the smallest of these garden herbs, and yet you leave out the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness, which in fact corresponds to what may be called the key verse in Micah's prophecy. Well known. Chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Significant parallels between what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and what Micah says in that famous passage. Now, the prophecy begins by announcing the Lord's anger and the fact that he was about to come in judgment. Look at verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Very vivid imagery here used to describe the coming of God in judgment against Israel and against Judah. And notice the language that is used. The Lord is about to come and all of nature will be affected. The mountains will melt and the valleys will split open. This is a common feature of prophetic language in describing a coming judgment. God acts in judgment, doom is pronounced, and all of nature reacts. I like to refer to it as the image of the convulsion of nature. The stars fall from the heavens, the sun goes dark, the moon 
uh, turns to blood, and all of these terrible things happen. The earth quakes, the land trembles. And here it says in this passage that when the Lord comes out of his place to tread upon the high places of the earth, the mountains will melt and the valleys will split open. And why? Why was all this going to happen? Verse 5 says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? God is saying, your chief cities, which you see here on the map, your capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem, the political, cultural, and religious centers of your two kingdoms are the twin sources of all the trouble among you, the centers of injustice and apostasy and false worship. Now notice, and this is very powerful, instead of specifying at this point specific sins for which God is bringing judgment upon these two kingdoms, he generalizes it. He says, the city of Samaria is the sin of Israel. The city of Jerusalem is the high place of Judah. This is like saying, what is the transgression of the United States? Is it not Washington, D.C.? A city of great influence, a city of great power, a city that in some instances frames injustice by statute, a phrase that's taken from Psalm 50. And God says, woe to you who do this, who frame injustice by statute. So the language here is very powerful. Now, he will go on to specify some particular sins, some specific sins. But here initially it is Samaria itself, the capital of Israel, is the sin of Israel. And Judah is the high place. I'm sorry, Jerusalem is the high place of Judah. Now, what is a high place? A high place was a, a place of false worship. Pagan shrines were often built on hills or mountains. And God is saying that the worship you offer me in Jerusalem has become false worship. You have turned it into just another high place. Now, remember, Jerusalem was the place that God himself had designated for his people to come to worship him. When they were in the wilderness, God told the people of Israel, when you enter into the land, you're not to go and offer sacrifices just any place you see some hill or under some green tree and erect an altar and and make a shrine. No, you are to come and bring your sacrifices to to the place where I will set my name. That's the language that he uses. And the meaning of that is wherever in his providence the tabernacle is set up in the days when it was a a movable structure. Later it was the temple, a permanent structure built in Jerusalem. And so the people were not to sacrifice anywhere. They could slaughter their animals for meat and for food at any place. But if they're offering sacrifice, not just any place will do. Not out in the backyard, not on the hill over yonder. But in Jerusalem, you bring the sacrifices. That was the place that was designated for God's worship. But here, God says, Jerusalem is the high place of Judah. That was a a place that was off limits for worship and a place that was often used by by pagans and those who worshipped idols. And so the Lord is saying, you've just turned Jerusalem into just another high place, a place of false worship. Now, in verses 6 and 7, the Lord announces that he will turn Samaria into a heap of ruins. Therefore, I will make Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down Uh, I'm sorry, I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Drawing upon that same imagery that Hosea had used earlier of Israel prostituting herself to go worship these these false gods. But notice that he says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. As you travel through the Middle East, as Melinda and I were in Israel, there are various places that were called tells, T-E-L, some add an extra T, but a tell is the site of an ancient ruin, a city that was usually built on an elevated place, but then after it's destroyed, the the rocks of the surrounding fortifications, the walls and the, the buildings are torn down, and eventually it just grows over and just looks like another hill. And archaeologists can go in and they can, they can dig and they just can discover what things were like in antiquity by the things that they find there. Well, that's essentially what God is saying here through the prophet Micah. I'm going to make Samaria a heap in the open country. This next slide, you see Samaria. You don't see a city there, do you? This is Tel Samaria. This is the capital city of the northern kingdom. This, oh, I can't point on that screen. But that hill there, that's where the city of Samaria used to lie. So God was saying, I will make Samaria a heap. And he was, in fact, true to his word, as we know he always is. Now, remember, this portion of Micah's ministry overlaps the latter years of Hosea's ministry. And Hosea has been saying the same thing for decades ahead of Micah. God will judge the northern kingdom. Israel will be defeated by the Assyrians, and Samaria will be destroyed. Now, we read about the event itself back in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17. I don't hear pages turning. Oh, there we go. There's a few. Okay, you're on your screen, right? You're scrolling. I mean, your Bible app not Facebook. <clears throat> there's, there's something about a Bible in printed form that I like better. That's not to say that the Bible in other forms isn't still the Bible, but at any rate. Second Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, that's not Hosea the prophet, but that's Hosea, a different person. Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria, over, over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. So he's trading allegiances. We have been the vassals of the Assyrians, their tribute, the tribute that they require of us is too heavy. We're going to turn to the Egyptians and we'll revolt against the Assyrians and the Egyptians will help us do this. That's the rationale. Uh, Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Didn't turn out so well. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria and for three years he besieged it. Now, as you look at the screen there and you see that mound, think of that as a well-built city and think of it being surrounded by the Assyrian army. For three years they laid siege to it so that no 
Provisions could enter. Nobody could get out. For th- they're waiting them out, weakening them through hunger and thirst and waiting things out until eventually they're weak, and weak, weak enough for them to take it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, that is, various kinds of idols. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Now notice verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and their warnings that he gave them. They went after falsehoods and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven, the stars. And they served Baal, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. All right, so this is speaking of what was going to happen in Micah's future, but this is what Micah is prophesying about. The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to lay siege to Samaria and make Samaria a heap a place for planting vineyards and a place for jackals to rest, a place for, for no, um, uh, where there's no, not going to be any inhabitants, no dwellings for people to live in. So this was what Micah was prophesying about. All right? Um, and this is what Hosea and Amos had been speaking about before Micah. They were among those mentioned in verse 13. Look again at verse 13 where it says, The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. There were others besides Hosea, Amos, and Micah who were prophesying. There were non-writing prophets. They didn't leave us a record of the prophecies God gave them. But these three that we've been talking about have been prophesying along with some others. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your father. And the Lord was very patient and sent to them time and time again, and still they were stubborn and refused. Now, the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom didn't stop 
at its border with Judah. Judah also was invaded at the same time. And many cities of Judah fell to the Assyrians, but not the main cities and not Jerusalem. But it was nevertheless a time of great distress and loss in Judah. Micah prophesied about all of this about 10 to 15 years before it happened. He says, this is what is coming. And a part of his prophecy concerning the event is in the form of a lament. Uh, speaking of it as if it's happening at the present moment or as if it has, ha- has happened. And a part of his prophecy uh, that we find here in verses 8 through 16 mentions several cities of the southern kingdom, several cities of Judah, the location of many of them we don't know where they're at. But it's interesting because the Lord, through Micah, mentions forms of judgment that correspond somehow to the name of each city. Let's read it. Verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for who, her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah, and not only in the northern kingdom, but to Judah also. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehafra. Now, Bethlehafra means house of dust. Now, notice what it says. In Bethlehafra, roll yourself in dust. Okay, there's a play on words with the meaning of the name. Verse 11, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, which sounds like the Hebrew word for beautiful, and it contrasts with what follows, nakedness and shame. Pass on your way, the inhabitants of Zayanan, which sounds like come out. But it says, the inhabitants of Zayanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel, house of taking away, shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth, bitterness, wait anxiously for good, for something sweet, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds, a word that rhymes with Lachish. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish, for it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts. The Hebrew word is dowry. Therefore, you shall give a dowry to Meresheth Gath, which means one who is betrothed. The houses of Akzib, which means deceptive, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah, a word that sounds like conqueror. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle. This was a, a mourning, a uh, symbol of mourning to shave one's head. And he's saying, do this because trouble and distress are coming and it's going to affect even your children for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. The children shall be taken from you and go to a foreign land. You'll be parted from them. Now, in chapter 2, we move from lamentation to woe with a recitation of some of the specific sins for which the Lord was planning on judging um, Israel and Judah. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. You know, it's one thing to stumble and fall into sin when you're encountered with a sudden unexpected, powerful temptation. It's quite another thing to do so with premeditation. 
right, to, to think about it beforehand, to plan, to scheme, to do something wicked. And that's what Micah is talking about here. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. David says in Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. Now, let me ask you, what do you think about at night when you're waiting to fall asleep? That can be a really productive time or it can be a really destructive time. In the quiet of your own home, you've got a period of time, unless you're my wife, she, her head hits the pillow and she, um, I tell you, she's asleep in 30 seconds. I don't know how she does it. It takes me 30 minutes at a minimum, usually, to fall asleep. But during that moment, When you lie down, you're with your own thoughts, you're not talking to anybody. What fills your mind? The wicked, the Bible says, fill their minds with plots to do evil. David describes himself, how he thought in those moments. He says, my soul will be satisfied when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the night watches. That is Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. My soul will be satisfied when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What fills your mind? The Bible says, blessed is the one who, who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. Right? Those moments can be very productive spiritually for our growth, or they can be very destructive for us. Micah says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in the power of their hand. In other words, they can. That's why they do it. Because they can. They have the power. They have the opportunity. They have the means. They have the power to do it. They plan it out. They work it out on their beds. And when the dawn comes, they perform it. Now, what kind of things do they do? Verse 2 says, They covet fields and seize them in houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, that might bring to your mind a certain man in the Old Testament, a king by the name of Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 17 or 18, I believe it is, he coveted Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember that story? Naboth, just an ordinary Israelite, had a, a vineyard that was adjacent to one of the fields of the king, King Ahab. And Ahab said, sell me that field. And Naboth said, I don't want to sell that field. It's the inheritance of my fathers. It's been in my family. And I want it to stay in the family for years to come, generations to come. And Naboth went into his house, and he turned his face against the wall, and he was sullen and vexed, and he pouted like a two-year-old. And his wife comes in, and he says, she says, Are you not the king of Israel? You know, what good is being king if you can't take what you want? It's essentially what she was saying. She said, Don't trouble yourself. I'll work things out. And she paid two men to lie about Naboth, to bring false witness, to say that, that Naboth cursed God and the king, both death penalty crimes. And so he was convicted on the basis of these two false witnesses. He was killed. And because it was a treasonous act of cursing the king, then his property was confiscated. And where did it go? But to King Ahab. This is the kind of thing that Micah is condemning here. Those who are in powerful positions, who use their power not for good, but for evil. 
robbing people of house and inheritance. Now, verse 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You can't escape it. And you shall not walk haughtily, proudly, arrogantly. And that's how the wicked often walk, especially when they are in positions of great influence. They think nobody can touch them. They can get away with what nobody else can get away with, and they walk arrogantly. But here Micah is saying, tables are going to be turned here. I'm bringing disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk arrogantly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Right? The Assyrians are, are not believers. They are not God's people, but all of the inheritance of God's people of the northern kingdom are going to be given uh, to idolaters, apostates. It's going, it's going into other people's hands. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot, no property to, to measure for yourself in the assembly of the Lord. And what is the response to this word of judgment? The response should be, O oh Lord, forgive. Be merciful to us sinners. We repent in dust and ashes. But what is their response? Verse 6, do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, they're saying, Micah, don't say such things. We, we don't want to hear them. Micah points to the irony, and perhaps we would do better to say the hypocrisy of their saying, don't preach. Because in saying one shouldn't preach of such things, they were doing a good bit of preaching themselves, weren't they? It's like people today who are fond of telling you not to judge when you stand for biblical truth, when you defend uh, the reality of what marriage is between a man and a woman, or when you defend the, rights, uh, the right to life of the unborn, um, or whenever, you, whenever we take a public stand for biblical ethics, biblical morality, for the truth of God, what is the refrain that we hear from the world? Don't judge. Now, what are they doing when they say don't judge? They're judging us for judging them, <laughs> right? Um, it, it's, it's a self-defeating position, and that's what Mike is pointing out. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. All right, so they were defiant. They said these things will never happen. The things you're talking about, Micah, they're not going to happen. God's not going to punish us. You shouldn't say that he will. In Isaiah, we read something very similar. Isaiah chapter 30, where it says, They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the word or the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, another word for prophets, do not see. And who say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Tell us things we want to hear. Tell us how much God loves us and what a wonderful plan he has for our lives, even though our hands are red with the blood of the innocent, even though we have coveted other people's property and robbed them of it. Prophesy to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah was prophesying about the same, prophesying about the same time as Micah. 
And their prophecies correspond like this. Verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? You say you don't want to hear my word? Why is it that you don't want to hear my word? My word does good to those who walk uprightly. You must not be walking uprightly, and that's why you don't want to listen to it. And I tell you, young people especially, the word of the Lord does good to you. The word of the Lord does good to you. Listen to what the word says. Hear it, receive it, let it be implanted in your hearts. Walk consistently with it. God will never disappoint you. You will never get to old age and say, I wish I had never lived as a Christian. If anything, you would say, I wish I had known the Lord a year or two before I came to know him. I wish there never was a time when I didn't know him. The word of the Lord will always do good to those who order their lives according to its teaching. But Verse 8, but lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war or no thought of trouble. Here goes a, a man walking down the street and he's mugged. He's stripped of his robe. Somebody absconds with his wallet. Somebody steals his car. Right? He's, he's going upon life, not anticipating any kind of danger, and somebody does this terrible thing to him. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. <laughs> All right, now, earlier, they had said to the seers, do not see. To the prophets, do not prophesy. Speak to us smooth things. And here's what they want to hear. Things that comply with and satisfy their own desires. If somebody comes and speaks to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. The Lord had said, <clears throat> or the people had said earlier, do not preach and now he, they say, we do want to hear preaching, but only of a certain kind. turns out it's wind and lies. In a second letter to Timothy, Paul writes about those who will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. And that's describing exactly what we're reading here in Micah, and it's also describing very accurately much of what we see in modern Christendom as well, where there are... Sad to say, large swaths of the professing Christian population who appoint for themselves preachers and teachers and prophets and whoever who will say what the people want to hear. Now, this chapter closes with a brief promise of hope in verses 12 and 13. In fact, these are the only two verses that give any kind of prospect of, of hope and cheer in the first three chapters together. Uh, this represents a change in tone because everything up to this point has been judgment and woe. But now we have some hope. And they concern the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Israel. It seems to refer to those from the northern kingdom and from the cities of Judah mentioned in chapter 1 who managed to escape. They, they weren't killed in the battles with the Assyrians. They weren't captured and sold into slavery or resettled in other places. They managed to escape um, and... They come to Jerusalem, 
where they find refuge. They're refugees. They're like brands plucked from the fire of foreign invasion. And notice what it says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, the survivors, those who are left. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach up before them, they break through the pass. I'm sorry. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, notice the two figures used to describe the Lord. In verse 12, he is the shepherd of Israel. He will gather the survivors. He will gather a faithful remnant like a shepherd gathers his flock. He will gather them into his fold, which was a place of refuge from predatory animals. And he will lead them out to pasture to feed them. So he's the shepherd of Israel in verse 12. In verse 13, he is the king of Israel who passes before them to lead them to a place of refuge, to lead them to a place of safety. We should know this, that there is always hope for those who trust in the Lord and who remain faithful to God, even in times of great distress and terrible judgment. In times of great apostasy, God will always have a faithful remnant, and we ought to endeavor to be a part of that faithful remnant. Remember in the days of Elijah, he was so discouraged. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, and he was so discouraged. And he flees from Ahab and Jezebel, and he finds himself on a lonely mountain, and he says, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one in Israel who serves you. Just, just take my life. Let me die. And God says to him, no, I have reserved or I have preserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now you think of how many people lived in Israel at the time, and you think, well, 7,000 is not very many in comparison to the whole number. But God had his faithful remnant. And for the sake of that remnant, God allowed uh, the kingdom to continue for a time longer. God always has a faithful remnant. Think about the days of Jesus. Right? There were not many in Jesus' day who were faithful. The nation as a whole rejected Jesus. The nation as a whole called out for his condemnation, his judgment, his crucifixion. But there was a faithful remnant that God kept faithful, and they recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. Likewise, there is a remnant today. We live in in an era in which we live in a country that has a great Christian heritage but has greatly fallen off. Uh, A nation, a culture that has turned its back. Western civilization as a whole has has increasingly turned its back on its Christian roots in a very very self-conscious way. You might have heard in the news that after the bombings in Sri Lanka last Easter morning that some of our public officials referred to the Christians there as Easter worshipers. They couldn't bring themselves to refer to them as Christians. You know, if it's an attack on any other people, it's, you know, know, very quick to point out that, you know, what religion they're from as those who are victims. But for some reason, there's this reticence to recognize the legitimacy of the Christian faith and of Christian, uh, Christian people. Today, there is a remnant. Let us by God's grace, strive to be a part of that remnant, to remain faithful, whether things continue to go reasonably well, economically, we have freedom, we have prosperity, or whether things go south in a hurry. Let us be a part of that faithful remnant. May God make it so. Amen.